0: Welcome to This Week in Ringer Culture. I'm Liz Kelly, bringing you the highlights from the Ringer Podcast Network. Also be sure to check out theringer.com this week. We gave you some awesome TV and movie recommendations, you know, for when you're bored, at home, or for Thanksgiving. And we did a lot of talking about superheroes, including a superhero draft that brought out some really alarming levels of competition from our staff. So like I said, on Monday, our staff released their ranking of the 50 best superhero movies of all time. So on The Watch this week, Chris and Andy discussed those rankings and some over Rated movies in the genre.
1: So let me just ask you: You were not part of the voting block, no. Uh, so as an as an outside observer, what did you think of the the way the ranking sorted itself out?
2: Just want to be clear on one thing, because Thor Ragnarok, very recent film, made the list. Yes, number nine, um, deserving of its very high stature, eh. I think. But the much more expansive reboot of Birdman as Lady Bird did not. <laughs> it
1: did not. Did
2: not make it. <laughs> I just wanted to be clear. Yeah. That's too bad. Yeah. Um, I thought this list was fascinating because, first of all, it's just there's so many of them, you know? There are so many of them, and this ha- happened relatively—it feels like it happened relatively quickly. It's,
1: it's like a, lo- a lot of them within the last 10 years.
2: Because let me tell you, I, I this is probably the least popular part of this podcast when we do Remember When's, but like, I, I remember when the X-Men movie— I hope not. <laughs> happened. <laughs> yeah. Me and too. And I can't, and remember thinking, I can't believe they made this. Yeah. And there's no way it's going to be popular. Like there was, it was so ingrained in the culture, not just in Hollywood because I had nothing to do with Hollywood at the time, but in like comic book fans well, and fans like of movies. It was like that nerd
1: culture thing of like, I can't believe they gave us a movie.
2: Because the, the, they never will. Uh-huh. Like there was just a deep understanding that this cannot happen. This will not succeed. And then it's taken over the world. Um, one of the things that I thought was most interesting about this list, and maybe this speaks to how there is much more quantity than quality, mm-hmm. is it, the transition from more or less garbage to, oh, that's pretty good, happens really suddenly and subtly in this list. Yeah. You know, it, it is not scaled up. Right. I, I don't know if like 26, I, I'm just calling numbers out, I don't have the list in no, front I mean, of me. No,
1: I've got it right here. And you, 26 would be Doctor Strange. Twenty
2: Doctor Strange is the perfect 26 because yes. Doctor Strange, Sh- whatever, sure. Right. Doctor Strange was a big sure. And then to get to the movies that we think of as, you know, actually quite good. Sure. I will say that looking through this list, there are very, very few movies on this list that I would say deserve to be on a list of greatest movies if you take away the adjective superhero. Super. Sure. Um, Which
1: ones would you put in there if you had to choose? Superman. Okay. Superman, that's it? <laughs> I,
2: think, I think that's kind of it. Do you not like Dark Knight? Um, I think Dark Knight is wildly overrated. Really? I do. i think it's crazy overrated i think that it is as a
1: superhero movie or as a movie as a movie do you what do you think of it as being the number one superhero movie of all time
2: i strongly disagree
1: okay so what would you put instead
2: uh first of all you told me that a movie like the incredibles was not uh eligible we don't acknowledge cartoons um yet you have guardians of the galaxy 2 on the list (laughs) so okay um here 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 are some of my more positive comments about about rank before i get like super nitpicky about it iron man 3 correctly rated Shout out to the Shane Blackhive. I have a, I have moles inside the office. <laughs> Iron Man yeah, 3. Yeah, you're looking at him. What do you think? I good, give
1: that thing like a nine. That's good, why it's up there.
2: Good work. Yes. I, I don't know. I mean...
1: the Great the, Amanda Dobbins blurb, too. It's the one where all the Iron Mans fight. She got it. Yeah.
2: But it's also the movie that has the long... <laughs> detective story l- set detective, in rural Tennessee. With a yeah. little kid. And yeah. also the Ben Kingsley thing. Yes. Fun, we won't talk about it, but it's just... That that is brings me yeah, great joy. to
1: Spoil Iron Man three
2: for all those heads. Who out knows? There. I'm, we're saying it's good. Maybe there are people so, who gave know, it a. Some miss.
1: dude is like, you know, I have, I still have Iron Man three in my red envelope, Netflix yeah. DVD, and I, I haven't returned it in six years. It's possible. Yeah. Sorry about that. Uh,
2: the you also as part of the expanded content of this list, you have a villain list, mm-hmm. uh, which is ec- completely correct. And that list it's the ranking of villains in superhero films oh. and. Um number one is Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight. Correct. Two through two hundred and seventy five is everyone else. everyone else. Yeah. Correct. Yes. No no love for Lee Pace's yeah. Judge Bluehead <laughs> in Guardians of the Galaxy One or whatever. Like it yeah. is it is it is Totally thankless job, and I'm glad that's say,
1: Don't you feel like we've been living with Thanos for a really long time? (laughs)
2: Hasn't
1: Thanos been getting teased for like eight years, or is it my imagination?
2: No, that's correct. Well, no, since four years. Since Avengers. So five years. And it'll be six years before he even shows up.
1: Speaking of which, what do you think of Avengers at two?
2: That's what I was my next point. Guys, Avengers isn't really good. Like that's my take. Yeah. Everyone has come around to agree that Age of Ultron is not good
1: yes i would say both of those films but even avengers which you know obviously ushered in this yes. idea of put all these people together you can make a billion dollars yada yada uh, you know this movie is not rewatchable
2: my man avengers is good in in severe quotes in the way that the force awakens is great and what i mean is it proved something thought impossible was in fact possible and didn't offend a majority of people. It pleased enough people just enough.
0: So keeping up with the superhero theme, next up we have the Rewatchables, where Chris, Jason, and Sean break down their favorite scenes from The Dark Knight.
1: The game of chicken between the 18-wheeler
3: and
4: the motorcycle. One of my favorite movie scenes ever.
3: Wow. What are you going to go with? I'm going to go with uh, the Joker's party appearance. You get the sense that the Joker obviously is damaged and very deep ways but he's also lying to you about everything and it's just magnetic you know the way he's uh, he lies about his scar he tells like two different stories about how he got the scars in his mouth and he's just absolutely controls the room controls the screen and uh, to have him there like in the locus of economic power of gotham this crazy clown force is just really cool i mean ledger is just absolutely burning up the screen in that scene he's incredible
4: I like that one too and I think that when he tells the second story because he yeah. tells that first story when he confronts the gangsters right? and then he tells a, st- a different story yeah. when he's at the party
3: well you look nervous is it the scars so I had a wife she was beautiful like you who gambles and gets in deep with the sharks hey. one day they carve her face We have no money for surgeries. She can't take it. I just want to see her smile again. Hmm? I just want her to know that I don't care about the scars. So, I stick a razor in my mouth and do this
4: to myself. And that's when you realize that he has a kind of an unreliable narrator quality where it's like this guy is either... Messing with everybody, or is having a break from reality? Right. Right. There's something really exciting when you're watching the movie and you realize that. Yeah, I would personally though go with the the entire chase scene mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. through the underground For when they put Dent da- in the truck. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. transporting Harvey Dent after he's turned himself in as quote unquote the Batman. There's a lot of McBain lines in that. It's like <laughs> I hope we can get through this uh, this street where their fire truck is on let's, fire. Let's talk about <laughs> Nicky Kat's performance in this movie. <laughs> Nicky Cat plays one of the cops who is transporting yeah. Harvey Dent. I guess the prison yes and he's being driven he's got to go from city to county or something like that and there's like a really funny line where one
1: of the cops is like once he gets to county he's their problem it's like (laughs) this would be (laughs) the National Guard would be here guys this is not like you got to clock out in time to get to like the bar to
4: watch the end of the Bears game right so they're counting on Dr. Exposition Nikki Cat. (laughs) And he's being driven by what we come to find out is Commissioner Gordon, who faked his own death at the assassination attempt on the mayor. Oh, is this? I hope you got some moves. Yes. Uh, (laughs) For some reason while driving, he's wearing like a gas mask. And he's being pursued by the Joker and his army of escaped Arkham Asylum um, lunatics. Yeah and it's one of the best chase scenes ever made it's one of the best grenade launcher scenes Just, ever oh made. my god <laughs> a lot of a bazooka
3: a lot of grenade launching
4: it's the single best that car flipped over scene in movie history in yeah. my opinion <laughs> um when the truck goes end to end stem to stick it's like that is the hair on the back of my neck moment for me and it's also the moment when you get you actually there's actually a character note in the movie when batman decides not to kill the joker right that actually is a A moment that pushes the psychology of the story forward as well as like getting you excited to see what's going to happen next. Yeah. Which is something that you know kind of only no one can do in these
3: movies. And it is a great moment because that's the inherent sadism of Batman. Where you really have to question this guy. How many people have died because you won't kill the Joker? Yeah. Right. How many people have to suffer because of this weird code that you have? There's a moment in the fundraiser scene yeah. where he
1: di- he disarms one of the lunatics and then like breaks down the gun and throws it yeah. away. I'm like, is this some sort
3: of moral victory? Like, do you think that not everybody else out there doesn't have guns? And, and how much of it is because you know he likes this? He could end this, but he won't. He knows the Joker's going to get out because how many times has the Joker got out? This is I mean, we're talking about the comic books now. He knows that. Someone's coming back. Some evil, the penguin. Someone is coming back. And yet he always just, well, I'm not going to kill him. I'm going to put him back in jail in Arkham yeah. where they've broken out 15 times. Why? Why, <laughs> Bruce? Does He he likes this. Yeah. He likes it, Absolutely, he? It does
4: seem like it keeps him going. And you have to ask yourself, what is motivating a lonely billionaire yes. whose only friend is an old British man yes. to keep going in life? Yeah, what, right. is, what is driving him to pursue things? And it's basically... Making himself the hero and getting into fights so he can feel something. Absolutely.
0: So, switching gears a little bit, the next clip comes from the Bill Simmons podcast where Ta Nehisi Coates, author of We Were Eight Years in Power, goes head to head with Bill to defend his favorite season of The Wire.
5: My friend Jonathan Abrams, who worked with me at Grantland, mm-hmm. um, is doing the Wire oral history that I think has a chance wow, to be special. Wow. But you were a Baltimore guy. You don't really. I, I didn't really. Did you write about the Wire? I never. Not too much. But I, I googled, googled the Wire. it. I looked for.
6: Uh, I wrote a few things for the Atlantic. But by, also by the time I started writing for the Atlantic, they probably was kind of done. Four. They probably were at season four. Um, that was the best season. That was okay, my so favorite I'm about season. Okay, so I'm about to cause a fight. For everybody Let's that's have a fight this. right
5: now. We can end it on this. Season two is the
6: best season of the Wire. Uh, Oh no! But none. Oh my god! It's not even a debate.
5: Now I feel it's like indisputably. Now I feel like Coates with John <laughs> Kelly walking in the ring.
6: <laughs> season two is so not the best <laughs> season. The best season Hawaii. Season me. four is the best season of TV ever. Season four is not even season four. The second best. Season four. It probably is the second best season. It goes two, four, one, three, five. See, everybody's
5: down on five, and five has now become underrated. Because everybody it's gets it. mad maybe about the newspaper. Plot. Yeah, the yeah, season yeah. finale, the series finale of The Wire, mm-hmm. I will stand by and ride to the death.
6: The problem with five for me, and i, I like let's be stipulated that we're talking about The Wire. Yeah. So anybody that starts with the problem with, and you're talking yeah, about The Wire. It's a Mount like, Rushmore well, show, right? Let's it's just on be the Matt I just felt like they. Like, I don't know what new was said at that point. Like I felt like they knew, and you watch McNulty tumble back. But okay, I already know who McNulty is. Right. I don't need to see him go back. I know. I got it. Yeah. I got it. Like I, I. I know. You know what I mean. And so that
5: it could have ended it for.
6: Yeah. And then done like a movie for a movie, because like before a, he comes back, right? Yeah. That shit. I didn't think that was gonna end well. I didn't think. I don't like my mind. McNulty does not come back, and they ride off into the sunset. McNulty, I know who McNulty is. He wasn't going to be the mayor of
5: Baltimore. No, that
6: wasn't going to happen at all. That wasn't going to happen. Maybe you're right. Maybe I got to. Let me say. Let, let me make the case for two right off the Please. it's Please. It's an unwinnable case, but I want to hear it. That's what you think. That's what everyone thinks, but everyone is wrong. Here's why. This is what people forget. Season one, you get drugs in Baltimore, and you get... It's not stereotypical, but the image of these black drug dealers is well within the the imagination. It's done really, really well. That's not a shot at it. Yeah. It's done really, really, really well. Season two, he's like, Oh, you thought this was some black shit? Fair. No, it's not. Yeah. It's not. I mean, I'm going it this just way. quietly, it just flips. This is no no no. This is this is Baltimore, man. And as a person that grew up in Baltimore, I knew they were poor white people in Baltimore. I knew they were working class white people who had these problems. You didn't, you know, see them in the same way. But to say, no, no, this ain't just black folks. This is the system at large and it's eating at everything. Yeah. I just thought that, like, I mean, when's the last time you saw like white drug dealers, white (laughs) urban drug dealers? When is that is there a character like Ziggy on? Like, I've never seen that. I've never seen anything like that. It needed season two.
5: The series as a whole desperately needed season two to exist. It
6: was a tremendous act of courage. So I just feel like from an ambition perspective, like to say, like, what was selling that like? Like, come on, you started with these cast of characters and now yeah. you're saying you're going to completely flip it and put them on the back burner and you're going to have white drug dealers?
5: Yeah. And, and shipping.
6: And shipping. <laughs> right, and shipping. That's what this is going to be docks. about. Right, and docks. And the intricacies of the yeah, shipping Yeah, can I only imagine business. the notes
5: from HBO for that? Oh, yeah hey, uh, the way. <laughs>
6: black characters, can we bring those back? The only thing I think is that they were making so, like the ratings were so low, that that gave them the shield to say, right, okay, just let forward, it happen. Go for it. Do, do whatever you want. It's not like we're banking on you anyway.
5: Were you uh, were you an Avon guy or a Marlo guy?
6: Oh, Avon by far. Okay. I'm sorry about Marlo. I, I couldn't, I feel like they didn't, um, Maybe this was an intentional creative choice. I, I didn't get enough from uh, Marlowe to get into him like I wanted to.
5: I think it was an intentional choice.
6: Uh, yeah, 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 right.
5: Now I'm getting excited to just rewatch the entire thing. I still stand yeah. by this series finale, though. I'm telling you,
6: I don't even remember it at this point. It's,
5: a, it's that's the thing. Nobody, everyone's just I like, yeah, season five, it. and they throw it off because of the reporter, just got Templeton. He's like God, staging was, the whatever. Oh, get him out of here!
6: Yeah.
0: Next up, the eternal sauce debate of ranch versus blue cheese continues on House of Carbs this week. House and Juliet give their takes on the debate, ranch mini kegs, and a cool ranch Dorito recipe I cannot in good conscience recommend, but House swears by.
7: Okay, next. This is a big one. This sent the internet on fire. This is big. Literally, because... Literally big. Hidden Valley, the dressing brand, sells a keg filled with ranch dressing. It's 10 inches tall, and it holds five liters of ranch dressing, and it flows out of the tap like fine wine. It's like buying <laughs> one of those mini kegs of beer, but with ranch dressing.
8: Yeah, so that's an 11 out of 10 idea. Very well done, Hidden Valley mini ranch. Uh, I mean, uh, ranch dressing. It's, not, it's just a mini keg. Do you what do you have a ranking of, of ranch dressings? Do you have brands that you are loyal to when it comes to the ranch dressing? I Julia? don't
7: really. I know this is really controversial, but I'm more of a blue cheese girl. I'm sorry.
8: Oh, You're allowed. It's and okay. And
7: I like ranch. I, I've very slowly had my standards eroded, so occasionally I'll dip a pizza crust in ranch, though that's <laughs> not really the pure way to eat pizza. But I just, given the option, I prefer blue cheese. So... You know, that's just where I stand. So therefore, I'm not like a ranch connoisseur, are you?
8: I wouldn't call myself a ranch connoisseur. I do appreciate ranch and I hold ranch and blue cheese um, yeah, I, I hold them equal. they mm-hmm. are they are um, both w- wonderful for the the jobs that they serve and the purposes that they serve. I like them equally on things that people have um, strong opinions about. I like them equally, for instance, on chicken wings. I like them equally on pizza. Mm. I think blue cheese is a fine blue cheese in that, in that dressing form as a dipping sauce is a okay on a nice slice of pepperoni pizza. That's the spice of the pepper, especially if it's like a nice, like, you know, robust pepperoni chunk kind of pizza on there. Sure. The ranch dressing is a nice cooling agent and gives a little bit of a sweetness to cut the acidity of that, of that pepperoni bite. So not afraid of, of, of a uh, blue cheese on pizza. Um, they obviously, you know, I wouldn't, I, I don't love ranch uh, on a cheeseburger. I do love blue cheese on a cheeseburger. But, you know, um, to me, I don't have a strong, they, they're, they're, they, they are each lovely in their own respective ways.
7: Wow. what You're so diplomatic.
8: Well, I, they, they they both have their, their, the attributes and qualities um, that belong to them. And they, they're, they're pretty f- distinct to me. I know that they get delivered in the same, uh, you know, context. But they're they're pretty different from each other. It's true, um, and, the, and the way we enjoy them.
7: Yeah. Also, I just think the blue cheese taste is much stronger. Like if you're opting for blue cheese, like you're, it's like not just it's not just a dressing. It's a much much more. Um, it's rich. Yeah.
8: It's a it's a rich kind of experience yeah, most of the agreed. time. Agreed. Agreed. But this, I like Hidden Valley Ranch. I yeah, have had me too. Hidden Valley Ranch. I stand by Hidden Valley Ranch. I think Hidden Valley Ranch. Listen to this. This is something that I've been known to do before. If you get the right size bag, it can't be the tiny bag. Cool Ranch Doritos. Get get yourself a bag of Cool Ranch Doritos, like the three-quarter size one. It doesn't have to be the big one because we're not pigs here. But get yourself like the three-quarter size bag of Cool Ranch Doritos. Open that sucker up. Get yourself a little Hidden Valley Ranch. Pour it directly into the bag, providing a nice, fresh, cool coating over your cold Cool Ranch Doritos and enjoy.
0: Interesting. I got to try that.
8: The House Recommends.
0: Up next, we're talking about a movie I've been super excited about. Lady Bird hit theaters earlier this month and is already garnering critical acclaim and Oscar buzz. Sean got to sit down with writer and director Greta Gerwig to talk about the film in this clip from The Big Picture.
9: I spent so long working on the script for Lady Bird and no one I took so long writing the scripts for Frances Hahn, Mistress America, be- because we don't do any improvisation, and I don't do any improvisation once I'm on my set. And it needs to work as a piece of writing, and I think that is the standard. So regardless of where things came from, it has to resonate on the, on the page and then ultimately on the screen. And I think, I think I spend so long on the script because that's the first test of is it working I remember having people read the script and gauging their response and they were having the response to the script that I wanted them to have the response to the movie. So I was like, okay, so the movie has a fighting chance of working because people told me they laughed a lot and they they got really weepy at the end, which is what I want that movie to do. So for me, the script needs to do it. It's also the way you get great actors. You give them a nice piece of writing and tell them this is... Now bring your talents over to the this playing field.
4: Noah was here last week and I asked him about something similar uh, yeah. and he said something similar. And so you guys are both maybe open-mindedly militant about the script?
9: Open-minded in that the interpretation is, is, is up for grabs and exactly how it works is up for grabs, but the words aren't. For me, in a way, that comes from um, my theater background. Theater was my first love and I first understood dramatic writing by reading plays and plays are not flexible y- you don't make it your own when you're doing Shakespeare mm-hmm. you, you figure out how it's gonna work by using the, that language so I think I I think I always instinctually had that as as the idea of, of wh- how it should be done not that you would never do any rewrites but largely that the text is not flexible do
4: you remember the first day you started writing Ladybird?
9: No, I don't remember the first day, but I do I do know there's a draft on my computer from at the end of 2013. So I think I was writing the big messy version in 2013. I think I was editing it and pounding it into shape in 2014 because then by 2015 I was raising money and uh, looking for my my producers and my financiers. It's not like it was the only thing I was doing, but I do find that giving myself a certain amount of time is, is valuable because it lets, lets everything settle. It lets all your anxieties settle. It allows you to have the story kind of come out at you rather than imposing your will on the story.
4: Out of curiosity, how many things did you start writing before you started filming Ladybird? Bird? Did you start like a bunch of other things to see if there were other things you would do or was this always going to be the first thing no matter what that you were in charge uh, of writer-director?
9: I think when I once I had a draft that was good, then I knew I was going to direct it because I'd always wanted to be a writer-director and I just knew that if I didn't do it now, I wasn't going to do it.
4: Why do you say that?
9: Because I felt that I had been... Preparing for it for, for a long time I had been uh, working as you know, a co-writer and a producer and an actor and I'd, I'd done a lot of different kinds of films, some of them were very low budget so everyone was doing everything and that was part of my film school and then I'd been hanging out with anyone who would let me get close to the process of making films so uh, every film set for me became an opportunity to talk to directors and DPs and production designers and costume designers about what they were doing and how they were doing it. So when I had this draft ready, I thought, it's time. You're not going to learn any more by not doing it. (laughs) There's no more lessons over there.
0: It's officially the holiday season now where love is in the air, and Jam Sessions, Juliet, and Amanda talk about one of my personal favorite pairs, famous exes Chris Evans and Jenny Slate, and their potential reconnection.
7: We're gonna DTR and take a deep breath. Let's just run the clip first. Okay.
10: So this is from Chris Evans's Twitter. It was and so posted you know last what that week. means. So I'm gonna read the tweet first. Okay. This is Dodger Stuff Lion. He loves it. He brings it everywhere, talking about his dog's dog toy. If you press its paw, hmm, punctual grammar's not quite right there, but we're gonna go <laughs> past it. He's primary get, colors, Amanda. It's fine. Keep it moving. If you press the dog toy's paw, it sings. Today, Dodger the dog decided to join in, so this is a video of Chris Evans's dog singing along with a dog toy. And I'm just going to give everyone a tip here: to listen for any background noise that might be available. What <laughs> <It's funny>. magic? <laughs> Yep. Yeah. Okay. You know whose voice that is. That's Jenny Slate. You know that laugh. A once-in-a-lifetime laugh. That is Jenny Slate in the living room. With the dog. With the dog. Chris Evans is comfortable enough to post this identifying video clip on Twitter. They're back on. I
7: guarantee he didn't think it through first. There's no way he was like, okay, here's a sound of my girlfriend's voice in my cute dog video. I don't think he thought it through. I don't think he's that primary colors. I just don't He's think,
10: lived in this world for a while now. I don't now. know. I just—have
7: you never posted a video and you're like, fuck, I forgot that had sound? No. That's happened to me.
10: So. I'm hyper aware <laughs> of the effect that technology and media has had on our day-to-day lives, Juliet. I do this for a living. I don't know. I just feel like that wasn't intentional. However, then once the cat was out of the bag— They did she, not take it down. She followed up with a great tweet. Yes. This was November 10th from Jenny Slate. My boyfriend does many dreamy and generous things, but number one in my mind right now is how he celebrates my new turtlenecks, lets me show—again, we're having a lot of trouble with apostrophe S's—lets me show him my online shopping spoils and cheers me on.
7: I just think these two are, are in love. This is I, and, good. I got here too. I'm so glad to hear you have the. And they're similar. just like just going for it. They're just like look, we love our dog. Look, I, I'm buying turtlenecks, and
10: he still finds it sexy. Like great. I have totally evolved my position on this because this is not blacks backsliding. No, I think they're in love. This is 2.0. <laughs> I'm just like, am I? Are we gonna have a Chris Evans Jenny Slate wedding? I feel, I feel bashful for them. I know. It's, it's I mean, again, it's it's really it's like, nice. Really, they're putting it on display in a way that will come back to haunt them almost certainly. But yeah, they... They seem like they're in love. They
7: found love in a hopeless place. The
10: break was hard for them, and they got over it, and now they're building a life together with Dodger the dog.
7: How do you feel about the phenomenon known as cuffing season?
10: Oh, that... Yeah, I I buy it. Could we be witnessing cuffing season? It's definitely possible. And, you know, we could also just be witnessing their shooting schedules or such that they figured it out or are in Atlanta together still. I suppose we don't know where Doctor Dada was. yeah. Yeah. That all seems possible. I still think they're in love. I do
7: too. Maybe cuffing season brings out love.
10: Maybe we're just being really, maybe we need to believe in this love right now.
7: Maybe. I I, I found myself
10: extremely ready to do that.
7: (laughs) Do you think he was like watching when Harry met Sally and he was like, when you realize you love someone, you want to spend the rest of your time with them, like the rest of your life with them starting like immediately or whatever
10: he says. Yeah.
0: So one magazine that's actually covered Chris Evans and his ability to be a great ex-boyfriend is Vanity Fair. And this week's Press Box talks about Tina Brown, who recently released the Vanity Fair Diaries, which is a memoir about her time as editor in chief of the magazine.
11: On Tuesday, the legendary editor, Tina Brown, published the Vanity Fair Diaries, her previously private chronicle of her years editing Vanity Fair. Tina happens to be my old boss.
12: I remember. We were roommates in uh, the Lower East Side when you were working for Tina Brown.
11: Yeah, at the Daily Beast. Yeah. Remember that? I, I remember it well. It was, it I remember, was... a, lot
12: of real, I remember like a lot of really, really early mornings and a, la- and a lot of really late nights. I, there, was
11: a, there was a stretch where I, I didn't see you very much. It was an amazing thing about Tina. She's being, she's getting a round of tributes, big piece in the New Yorker this week. But yeah, when I would wake up in the morning at an incredibly early hour, I would notice that she had emailed me at like 1230 after I had gone to bed and then also at 430 in the morning. So she had, she had been emailing me after I went to sleep and before I woke up (laughs) simultaneously. I always love that also when I met her when she was interviewing me for the job in two thousand and eight. Someone sent her some of my clips and she said, Brian, I like you, except for your unfortunate preoccupation with sport. <laughs> Singular sport. Okay. I love that. My uh, other great memory of her is that she was always working, she always seemed to be pushing so fast, so furiously, you know, just trying to do so many things that in her email, she eliminated verbs. She just didn't use verbs just like mean, they what? Were she was just like typing stuff out. So let me give you let me give you an example. So okay. one time I had a piece that I had edited by Mike Schaefer and she wasn't familiar it was a really funny story and I sent it to her, you know, the night before something and she wasn't familiar with her and said wasn't familiar with Mike. So she wrote back and said this inspired who this and how it happened. <laughs> <laughs> that was sort of Tina without verbs. I love that. Um, <laughs> it's an amazing week to think about her because I feel we're at the end of this era of the great, well paid, taste making, Lincoln Town car writing creature known as the magazine editor. Yeah. Graydon Carter stepping down after 25 years at Vanity Fair. Sure. This giant Joe Hagan book about Jan Winter and what a colossus he was yeah. in his time. And the still Anna Winter, still at a mosque, but... We're we're at the end of this, right? This is this this is passing from the world, the person that Tina Brown was, and could be, and you couldn't even be that if you wanted to anymore.
12: Yeah, it's really amazing. I mean, there's there, uh, I think you know, you and I both came up through you know the New York media world um, in an era where we, I mean, it was already fading, but there was but. You know, I, I don't think anybody of our of, of our age bracket didn't, you know in, in New York in those years didn't imagine them, themselves in Tina or Greg and Carter's corner office one day, right? I mean, that was the job that everyone aspired to. and as as you know, is discussed in the uh, in the New Yorker profile, uh, Nathan Teller's New Yorker profile of Tina Brown. All of the stories are kind of up from the bootstrap stories you know you sort of imagine yourself as this as this uh, protagonist that that somehow achieves really the seat of power and I think that you know they were holdovers from a, a not too far not too long ago era and, and and this is what I think is is really key in which reaching the heights of the literary or journalistic world was as good as being any other kind of superstar
13: mm-hmm
11: Weirdly, right?
12: Yeah, I mean, she was. She talked about there, there's a there's a line in the New Yorker piece about she kind of apologizes for all the celebrities in the '80s, you know, that she mentions in her. And she's like, "Oh, it was the '80s," but it was also, I mean, yeah, this was this was the era of, you know, of famous writers like holding court at the biggest clubs in the city. You know, I mean, this was it was a real it, it was it was it was an aspirational moment, I think, in the journalism and just literary world at large in a lot of different ways and. Um,
11: yeah, if it's the twilight of the magazine editor, it's also the twilight of the overpaid magazine writer. Yes. Yeah, for Six sure. Six figure salary, book yeah. deal, movie deal after
12: your pieces. And, and both, I mean, and Grant Carter, who had been at Vanity Fair for the longest time, you know, had a stable of writers who had been his his writers for, for forever. The Spy that was, and the Observer and everything. Yeah, the people that he, you know, he made into wealthy, successful people. And Tina Brown, the same way. Obviously, you know, Tina Brown was at Vanity Fair in a, in a previous, you know, previous iteration of Tina Brown. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but, uh, but yeah, I mean, she, her, her career, um, is just, just really amazing. And I, and I, and I knew who she was when you were working for her, but it it took me, it, like, it, it, it wasn't, um, I mean, it just seems so alien that you would be working for someone like Tina Brown, right? Just this sort of like grand figure of publishing, um, and it's interesting now that we're that it's it's already that, like you said, the era is the era is ending.
0: Another book talking about an iconic magazine is Sticky Fingers, the life and times of Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone magazine. In our last clip of the week, you'll hear Chris and Annie chatting with the author, Joe Hagan on Paul McCartney's relationship with Rolling Stone.
13: I remember going in. This was really maybe close to the beginning of the process, thinking nothing's going to come out of this. This mm-hmm. will be totally canned stories and a lot of. Uh, and this hot was air. in person. Tell, tell, it was in person. I, w- I went to England. Took a train. Um, uh, to, there was a station called Rye. It was uh, near the Channel. I went out to his studio. He had an office. It was amazing.
2: Can I just say also, what yeah. is that like for you? Because you're on a, you're flying across the ocean. Yeah. You're going to London. And in the back of your mind, do you just have it loaded? If someone asks you what you're doing, you're going to say, I'm going to meet a Beatle? Like, yeah. is it, is it, is it, what does that even well, feel like? Well, I
13: definitely felt it, you know, as a yeah. person who's just an incredible, obviously, fan of just uh, you know, like everybody else in the world. Yeah. Um, and I was doing other interviews while I was there, but with people you wouldn't have known about or not as famous. So when I was going out there, I was thinking to myself, well, if nothing comes out of this, I'll have met Paul McCartney. Yeah. And what the hell? Let's go. Yeah. You know, yeah. So I went. Um and uh, so I was surprised to learn that he had a lot to unload that he had had a kind of like years long tension and resentment of Jan and Rolling Stone what was the moment that you realized that the interview was going in a different
2: direction than you had expected
13: I think um, well what happened was uh, in the book I don't know if you've gotten this far but there's a um, there was a Polaroid that had been sent to Jan anonymously mm-hmm. care of Johan Wiener <laughs> that I found in Jan's archive and it was a it was from 1974, and it had Paul and John together in it, uh, kind of cavorting with Keith Moon and Linda McCartney in some kind of patio scenario. <laughs> and underneath the white space on the Polaroid, it said, "How do you sleep?" Question mark. Question mark. Question oh, mark. Oh yeah, which is an, uh, an allusion to the Lennon song that was mm-hmm. uh, hitting McCartney. Mm-hmm. And so I pulled this out, and then lots of things began to flow. With he told had me, Had you seen that image in a while?" He he knew. Exactly what it was. And May Peng, sure. I've learned since, uh, published a book of other Polaroids from this same period. Mm-hmm. Because what had happened, as you learn in the book, and Paul told me, which was that uh, Yoko Ono had come to him and said, uh, you know, John and I are broken up. He's out in L.A. going crazy. It the Nielsen era. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. Lost yeah. Weekend yeah. Uh, era. Can She actually asked Paul to go act as an emissary and tell him that she would take him back. And so he goes to L.A. with Linda and this whole scenario unfolds in which he sees Lenin. Now, the reason this was significant is it sort of portended, uh, you know, John Lennon going back to New York mm-hmm. and living in the Dakota, mm-hmm. um, and then. But it also was sort of a. Uh, a period where they were going to repair their relationship a little bit after the breakup of the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And Rolling Stone had been really in the middle of the Beatles breakup. Yeah. In the John Lennon interview of seventy one, which is the epic interview of really the biggest rock and roll interview Jan ever did yeah. by any, you know, measure. And uh, that was a very painful interview for Paul. It had sort of it was putting salt in the wound mm-hmm. about what had the breakup. And, you know, he Paul recognized correctly that Jan and Rolling Stone were partisans. For John Lennon mm-hmm. in this whole scenario. and But you would think, okay, maybe that was an isolated period. But yeah. this went on for the rest of the history of Rolling Stone in Paul's mind. That Lennon, wow. that Rolling Stone and Jan, especially after he died, had turned John, had gone of worked hand in glove with Yoko, because they became social friends, Jan and Yoko, mm-hmm. uh, to make John Lennon the only Beatle that mattered. The, br- right. the, the true genius. yeah, The true genius. And in fact, Paul says in the in my interview in the, in the book, uh, you know, I just booked the studio. <laughs> you know, that's 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 what it seemed like, and he, and this went on to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame too. That became another issue, as you'll read later. Right, which Jan is the gatekeeper, self appointed gatekeeper. That's right, of essentially. That's right. And Paul felt like he got uh, screwed over by Jan and the, the in his own induction, and so it's a real. Um, you know, listen. I was thinking. Obviously, these things all happened in the '60s. Clearly, they're over it. They're not going they're to not be. Over no, they never get over it. They're, yeah. they're always sensitive flowers. So they're, they're artists, right? Flowers exactly.
0: Okay, that's a wrap on this week. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a great weekend. And remember, you can find the full-length versions of all these podcasts and subscribe at theringer.com slash podcasts.